Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. As listeners of our show uh, may remember, each and every week a guest and I unpack the weekly parasha, the weekly section of the Torah, the five books of Moses that are read in synagogues each and every week. The Torah portion is read on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Um, and then a new Torah portion begins. Um, each of the 54 Torah portions um, is uh, uh, identified by tradition and takes us through the entirety of the five books. This week, Jewish communities throughout the world are reading from the parasha known as Vayachi. It is the concluding parasha of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Torah. Let me offer a synopsis before I uh, introduce our guest, Rabbi Mark Levin of Overland, Kansas. Jacob lives the final 17 years of his life in Egypt, Jacob the three, third of the patriarchs. Before his death, he asks Joseph to take an oath that he will bury Jacob in the Holy Land. He then blesses Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, um, and elevating them to status of his own sons and as progenitors of tribes within the nation of Israel. The patriarch Jacob desires to reveal the end of days uh, to his children, but the Torah text indicates that he's prevented from doing so. Jacob blesses his sons, assigning to each his role as a tribe. And for our purposes this morning, it's interesting to note that Judah, who is not the firstborn, will produce leaders, legislators, and kings. Following the death of Jacob, a large funeral procession consisting of Jacob's descendants, Pharaoh's ministers, the leading citizens of Egypt, and Egyptian cavalry, cavalry accompany Jacob to his final journey in the Holy Land, where he's buried in the uh, Machpelah, the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. Joseph, too, eventually dies in Egypt at the age of 110, we're told. He, too, instructs that his bones be taken out of Egypt and buried in the Holy Land. But this would come to pass only with the Israelites' exodus from Egypt many years later. Before his passing, Joseph conveys to the children of Israel the testament from which they will draw their hope and faith in the many years to come. And Joseph concludes by saying, God will surely remember you and bring you up out of this land to land which he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a Torah that on first appearance seems to be an interesting conclusion to the book of uh, Genesis. And with me this morning is Rabbi Mark Levin, the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Torah in Overland Park, Kansas. Rabbi Levin served there uh, since 1988 as its founding rabbi and helped grow that congregation from a small renegade group 
into a large, thriving Jewish community. He received a master's in Hebrew letters from the Hebrew Union College and was ordained uh, at the same institution. And he received a certificate in communal studies from that institution. He received his doctorate of Hebrew letters in May of 2001 and his honorary doctorate of divinity in 2001 as well. Uh, Rabbi Levin um, serves on many local boards and writes about religious columns for the Kansas City Star and um, has participated in sharing his wisdom with many audiences, both Jewish and non-Jewish. Rabbi Levin, welcome again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It is a pleasure, an enormous pleasure, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Well, it is well-deserved. So as I indicated, this week's parasha uh, concludes the book of Genesis. And I'm wondering if we can begin with your thoughts about whether this parasha is a fitting conclusion to the book of Genesis. Yes. Um, you know, it, I have always thought of this parasha coming immediately after the elaborate story of Joseph um, as sort of a um, not as interesting, you know, why do we have to go through this? Because the blessings in chapter 50, where uh, Jacob blesses his sons, uh, are really not all that interesting. But when you delve into it, there are some things here. There's a conclusion here that parallels the the opening. The first 11 chapters do not have to do with the Jewish people. They have to do with the creation of the world. The opening of the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis assert God's divinity and control over the entire world. And here you have the transition at the end of the book to uh, from that. Uh, family of Israel, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, to the people Israel. Uh, and, and so there's a major transformation here, which uh, indicates as the next book will open up, and there, and, and there arose uh, a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph and the beginning of that in slavery. The slavery is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 15 which we read a number of weeks ago. So we we have here the conclusion of sort of the pre, uh, prior story to the main story of the Bible, which is the establishment of the Jewish people in their land. And I want to emphasize here, just as God is uh, the, has dominion over the whole world, that's the opening of Genesis, so we will see that God will have dominion over the land of Israel and will put his people in the land of Israel from going from family to people. And finally, let me just say uh, what you said about Judah being uh, dominant and that the kings of Israel, or the kings of actually of Judah, will come from, from the tribe of Judah. That's very important. It's important in both Judaism and Christianity uh, because we will see that the Messianic line comes not from the progenitor, not from the first, not from the first of the of Jacob's born, but from the fourth, Judah. Uh, and so God is indicating here that this is special. Okay, the normal line would be the firstborn gets the major blessing, but here we have Judah, the fourthborn, who will be the predominant force ultimately among the Jewish people. So 
There are a number of things of which you said that I'd like to pursue with you. Let's let's start with this notion that the first 11 chapters, chapter 12 introduces us to Avram and seems to be the progenitor of the Jewish people. But the first 11 chapters are about God the creator and the primordial stories um, which indicate um, the divine's relationship to the land um, and the world that God has created. And that is a um, non-particularistic story. It's not about uh, the divine and the Jewish people. It's about the divine and humanity. Exactly right. Genesis 12, uh, as you indicated, um, begins that transformation. By the last section of Genesis, the transformation is uh, totally complete in as much as the book begins to speak um, specifically to the relationship between the Jews, uh, the Israelites, and God, uh, to the exclusion of um, mentioning other people. And of course, in Exodus 20, the Aserita Debrot, the Ten Commandments, God introduces himself to the people as the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, not as the God of creation. So my question is, why do you think the Torah makes that significant transition? Uh, why is it introduce God as the God of all humanity and then chooses, or perhaps it doesn't choose, but makes the choice to focus on the remaining uh, verses and chapters of Torah uh, through Deuteronomy on the relationship between God and the Israelite people. The Bible sets up, thank you for this question, the Bible sets up God as the master of the universe, or God as the master of the world. And so at the beginning, God is the creator of everything. And we see that humanity is called, is, is charged to, to produce, be fruitful and multiply um, and, and uh, fill up the earth, and to conquer it. Uh, scholar Ellen Davis at Duke University points out that later the Jewish people will be told, so there's a special, there's, the world is special to God, and humanity is supposed to, to fill it up um, and conquer it. Uh, but it also says, uh, that the people must work it and preserve it. But then the same is said about the Jewish people in the land of Israel. So whereas humanity is special to God and, and, and they fill up the world, the Jewish people is special to God and fills the land of Israel and conquers that. So you have this special group within the, uh, with, within the humanity, and the question is to do what? Well, God creates the world as a paradise, okay? the Garden of Eden. It's even the word for paradise in Hebrew, Gan Eden. Garden of Eden means paradise. So humanity messes that up, and God tries again for 10 generations, and it doesn't work out, and so he destroys it and starts again, and that's the generation of Noah. And then God says, promises, well, I'm not going to destroy what I've done. That's behind us. I'm going, to, I'm going to find another way to get all of humanity to come to me. And the method that God chooses is I'm going to pick one family, 
And I'm going to command them to be my messengers and my servants. And that's the family of Abram and Sarai. And when they keep my will, when they keep my commandments, when they obey me, they will be rewarded. And when they rebel against me, meaning like in the Garden of Eden, they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, humanity gets choices. When they choose to do what I don't want them to do, they will be punished. And as that plays out, we see that God has a particular people that models what God wants for all of humanity, and that is to have a partnership with God in ruling God and and acting within God's world so that all of humanity ultimately is redeemed by following the model of first the family of Abraham and then the people, and then what becomes the people Israel becomes that in next week's parasha. So what you're suggesting is that God has a mission for the Jewish people. And the mission is not um, a mission of missionaryism, um, which perhaps has been interpreted um, in uh, some Christian denominations as bringing the word of God to others, but rather the means by which this is dealt with in the Torah is that if the Jewish people actualize their relationship with God, the world will see the benefit of that. Exactly right. God's plan is for all of humanity to come to God. You see this very clearly in the second part of Isaiah, in Zechariah, where you have a universal message. Chapter 56 of Isaiah, you have, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. Okay, in, in, uh, at the beginning, well, at chapter 42 of, of Isaiah, you see that the Jewish people are to be a light to whom? To the nations, so that all the nations will ultimately be redeemed. The special role of the Jewish people is not privilege. The special role of the Jewish people is responsibility. The responsibility is to, to be this messenger that demonstrates to the world and not, not by coercion. Okay, but demonstrates to the world that, that to live under the rule of God is a benefit for all. So is you use the word um, to live under the rule of God, but Jewish tradition would suggest it's more to live in partnership with God. Yes, I like that very much, and I appreciate the correction. Uh, what I meant by that is that God has these meets vote, these commandments uh, within the Torah. As I said previously, in the Garden of Eden, you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What does that story convey to us? It conveys to us that there is free will for humanity. You eat, you either eat or don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, we already did that, but we, but we, now we have to make all these choices. And every moment in our lives, every moment, we're actually making a choice whether to follow God's will or not to follow God's will. Well, it can be a small thing, right? Like what you're going to eat. Or it could be a large thing, like whether you're going to declare war, uh, whether you're going to take a life, whether you choose to be a benefit to all of humanity, or you choose to, to live a selfish life and only worry about your, your own welfare. And, and so that's what I meant, living under God's rule. There are all these understandings for every aspect of life, of how we would live in order to be a blessing, the blessing that God intends. So um, in the world that we live in today, you in the United States and uh, I in Canada, but throughout the world, um, the incidence of anti-Semitism is on, are on the rise. Um, 
and they are both overt uh, actions of anti-Semitism, and some anti-Semitic acts are hidden within uh, political comments about the state of Israel. Some are legitimate political criticism, but some are really um, a means by which to act out anti-Semitic beliefs and behaviors, and some are enablers of anti-Semitism. Let me ask you a question. This paradigm that you have offered to our listeners, of which I think you're correct in making the um, interpretation that the Torah begins with God speaking to the whole world and seeing that uh, speaking to the whole world is not as effective as having a people modeling the behavior that God wants. Um, Do you think that this paradigm has... um, um, uh, serves um, as a uh, foundational um, behavior, belief for anti-Semitic behaviors, that people become over the centuries jealous um, and do not see the mission of Israel to s- bring to everybody the word of God, even without coercion but simply through their lifestyle. Is that perhaps one of the foundational uh, paradigms for anti-Semitism? Right. So this is obviously a very difficult question in terms of following the Bible and and God's intention. So you have different interpretations of what we call the covenant. And here the covenant was established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is continued through Joseph and by moving out of the, the uh, of Egypt, as we have in this week's story, okay, in this week's parasha, and we will move through uh, the Sinai where we get these commandments, uh, and and move on into the promised land where we live them out. Now, uh, the Jewish people has developed that idea for the last really three thousand years, certainly twenty five hundred years. Now, how is that playing out? Well, some people took it into their own hands and established the state of Israel. We must remember that Israel is a political state. It is not, it is not a theocracy. And how that plays out uh, in political terms is, is in the hands of the people who politically run the state. We would hope for Israel to be a model to the nations. I would say that it's not. Uh, but it's a little bit of a lofty expectation uh, to say that, that uh It has to be a light to the nations, as Isaiah predicted, when in fact, like every other nation, it's simply a political state. So let's take the work of the Jewish people. There is a theory out there that that, uh, anti-Semitism arises out of jealousy of the role of the Jewish people or even rejection of the role of the Jewish people. I don't want to follow the will of God, those people would be saying. And so I reject the Jewish people, and that would be the rise of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism to me is a mystery. It even occurs in places where there are no Jews. So so uh, why would that happen, and why does it happen now? Um, this happening now in the United States for uh, some political reasons. People use it as a tool uh, by which to pick an, an enemy, a scapegoat, uh, on which to blame their own problems and put them on other people who have nothing to do with that. I have no idea, and I'm going to come back to your question, if that fits into God's plan. It would appear because uh, anti-Semitism is the world's most ancient uh, uh, racism or hatred uh, against the people. 
It would appear to be part of the divine plan, which I hate to say. Uh, all I can say about it is that the Jewish people have to live out. We must live out um, our uh, mission as God gave it to us, as is portrayed in the Bible, and as we interpret it in our own day, uh, and speak to people and say, this is who we are, and we would love to have you join our mission and redeem the world together. And I'm afraid the chips will need to fall where they may after that. But you, um, interestingly enough, reminded our listeners that in Genesis 15, there is a prediction of slavery. The book of Genesis ends with the ominous foreshadowing of the slavery that will take place um, shortly thereafter in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Is this notion of slavery uh, part and parcel of the uh, Israelites' mission in the world to show that um, one can be enslaved to human uh, leadership, but one um, can serve the divine in uh, a type of antithesis uh, to human slavery. Is this purposeful? Yeah, so it's very clear that it's purposeful, and God's intention is to teach a lesson. So uh, the slavery, which seems to come to pass because of a famine in the land of Israel uh, and the lack of food in Egypt, but then Joseph builds up storehouses, so, the, so they emigrate. This is part of a larger plan, which, as you say, is foreshadowed in Genesis 15, in which it is said that we will be, we will, we will be enslaved for either 400 or 430 years. Now, what's the purpose? The most oft-repeated line, the most oft-repeated commandment in the, in the Torah, some 33 to 36 times, you know the soul of the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know the soul. What is soul in the Bible? Soul is not the Greek concept that we think of of something that goes to heaven. Soul in the Bible is the inmost being. Nefesh in the Bible is the inmost being. So you know the inmost being of the slave, okay, of other people, of the stranger, okay, the person who is not of your family. You know the inmost being of that other. We call it other these days. Okay, You know the inmost being of the other. Why? Because of the slavery experience that you hold. In, in the United States, there are people whose ancestors were slaves by three, four, five, six, seven generations. And among the Jewish people, we still cling to the idea that 100 generations ago, we were slaves, and therefore that must affect our behavior, that we know what it is to suffer. We know what it is uh, to be God's servants and to suffer for that. And therefore, we must respect the other and bring the benefits of God's blessings to the other who is not even part of the Jewish people. I think that this is the most profound lesson in the entirety of the Bible, that God wants the brotherhood, sisterhood, the family of humanity to act in a way that, that brings humanity together. And the agent of that, the messenger for that, according to the Bible, is the Jewish people. So without the slavery experience, without the slavery experience, okay, we, we would not have the visceral lesson of what it means to associate ourselves with all other humanity that suffers.
It's interesting that you phrase it that way, because without that commandment mentioned 33 to 36 different times, and essentially the message of the Passover holiday, one might think that the uh, being God's messenger to the world um, would lead one to a very narcissistic experience. And I would suggest there are many in the Jewish world who um, have internalized only half of the message. We are the messengers. We follow God's law. And that, in some manner or form, makes us not only unique, but superior. Um, and that is, of course, one of the challenges of identifying yourself as um, a soul messenger. But paralleled with this um, other, other commandment of empathy, the, one of the earliest examples of true empathy, that you know the soul of the other, it um, is an inhibitor, at least in the structure of ancient Israelites, um, against uh, narcissistic behavior, that you are not better than someone else. You are certainly just... If particularly you look at the prophets um, from the 6th century with the uh, return to the land of Israel under Cyrus of Persia. So if you look at Ezekiel and if you look at 2nd Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, and you look at Zechariah, um, Zechariah in 14.9 will say, On that day the Lord shall be one, and God's name shall be one. Uh, in this last week's uh, Haftarah from uh, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophetic portion for this past week, the second part of Ezekiel chapter 37, where you have the return of the land and the reestablishment of the land and the establishment of the Davidic dynasty, these are to be a blessing to everyone. Now, are there people uh, who who take that as as characteristic of their special character? Unfortunately, yes, there are. I believe that those people are misunderstanding God's message, and it comes back, unfortunately, in Jewish history and punishes them. When we misunderstand uh, what our role is, then unfortunately, uh, we appear to the nations as being haughty. And I'm not trying to blame the Jewish people for, for anti-Semitism. Jewish pe- anti-Semitism is not the responsibility of the Jewish people. It's the responsibility of the anti-Semites. But when you miss your, uh, your, your message, when you miss your, uh, your mission in the world, then you're not acting on it. So, so when, people think of themselves as being somehow special and others inferior, less than that, let's not say inferior, less than that, you're missing that we're supposed to be living among the nations and demonstrating to the nations uh, what it might be like to live as though all of humanity is created in Selim Elohim, in the divine image, as God says in chapter one of Genesis. That's the message that all of us are Tselem Elohim, all of us are, are the divine image, and what we and our responsibility is the covenant with God to redeem all of humanity equally and together. 
When you miss that, yes, there are going to be bad consequences. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Mark Levin of Overland, Kansas, for a really insightful uh, wrap-up to the book of Genesis. I hope you, the listeners, um, are able to make the transition from the beginning chapters, 11 chapters, to the remaining 38 chapters or so, in which the message remains the same, that God creates and God is interested in all. And as Rabbi Levin has suggested, the Jewish people serve as God's messenger as to what constitutes a moral and ethical life. You can listen to um, our show on CHRI uh, radio station 99.1 as a podcast on chri.ca on itunes as a podcast or on uh, facebook i'm rabbi stephen garton wishing you shalom and having a good day and thanking my guest rabbi mark levin terrific thank you so much shalom shalom